You're listening to a special edition Economy Matters podcast produced by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. The Federal Open Market Committee concluded a two-day meeting the pace earlier of job today. job growth has been strong. Downside risks to the outlook for the, the number of Fed officials. banking Fed. system is large. We've come a long way since the darkest day of the financial crisis. Welcome to another Atlanta Fed Public Affairs Forum podcast. I'm Dave Altig, Director of Research at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. I'm here today with Megan Cummings, the Executive Director of the Women's Fund of the Greater Cincinnati Foundation. Thanks for being here, Megan. Thanks for having me. So why don't uh, you tell us, what exactly is the Women's Fund of Greater Cincinnati Foundation? Sure. The Women's Fund is a nonprofit, and we work on systems-level issues surrounding women's economic self-sufficiency. There are so many things that determine a woman's ability to be self-sufficient, but we specifically look at child care, accessible, affordable, quality child care, living wage issues, training and education, and employment. Um, so we look at that at a systems level. We do a lot of research. How do we activate that research? And ultimately, how do we affect policy change based on what our findings? So you do a lot of work on, uh, in particular, the issues that are confronting women who um, have low incomes, earn low wages. And you came today to talk to our public affairs forum about a um, product you've put together called the Employer Toolkit. Why don't you tell us what that is? Sure. So the Employer Toolkit is a relatively new resource that we put together. We were involved in a project called Raise the Floor about two, two and a half years ago. And Raise the Floor was created to get more women into advanced manufacturing careers. There were a lot of vacancies in a a kind of a campus of manufacturers in northern Kentucky. And we thought there was a great opportunity to get more women into these jobs. And what would they need to be successful in these jobs? They would need great certifications. They would need wraparound services like childcare and transportation needs to really make sure they were fully supported. So we thought we had it all figured out. Um, We got women into these jobs, got them hired into the manufacturing companies and quickly realized they were not staying. We had a lot of conversations with the HR directors and wondering what went wrong here. Um, And we were asking, are they trained appropriately? Yeah, they're some of our best trained workers. So what's going on? And what we found is oftentimes in that first 90 days, they would have a 90-day probationary period where although they were accruing PTO in that first 90 days, it was really frowned upon to take any. So we would have a lot of single moms who would miss a few days of work because of sick kids, right? And, And this policy was really working against them and the goals of the company. So we thought... Maybe there's other policies that have some kind of unintended negative consequence, especially on low-wage workers. And how can we work with companies to identify those policies and solve for them, which makes it more productive for the companies, they can retain workers better, and helps us just create a more stable workforce. So that's really the genesis of this project. So an interesting part of this project is that you talk to both employers and employees to kind of understand what the issues were on both sides of that exactly. employment equation. So well, we'll start with the employers. So yeah. what was the what were the pain points of the employers? Overwhelmingly, the employers all had the same pain points. Attraction, retention, and engagement. They can't get workers in, especially in this very low un- unemployment situation we find ourselves in. They can't retain them. There's a lot of churn, especially at low wage in the low wage workforce. And if they're there, they're really not engaged. They 
didn't know how to make the situation better. They knew there was a problem, but that wasn't really their specialty to dive deep on um, poverty and some of the complex issues that we see with these workers and their families. And they just wanted solutions that kind of made it simple. From the employee's point of view, many of them were juggling multiple part-time jobs to make ends meet. They were, many of them were qualifying for public benefits. They had very precarious transportation and childcare arrangements, which meant it was very difficult to show up to work consistently each day. We just saw a lack of, of choices for them. And especially with the female employees, we saw that they had a disproportionate amount of childcare and elder care that they were responsible for in their families. So after doing dozens and dozens of interviews of both the employees and the employers, we wondered how the Women's Fund might create a bridge um, between the needs of the different groups. And that's how the toolkit was born. So I gather that one of the things you found right away was that employers were generally not aware of the issues being confronted by employees. Absolutely. It was a big shock as we started talking with employers. They couldn't believe that some of their full-time workers were qualifying for public benefits. That was just new information to a lot of our employers. So we did a lot of education around what's the federal poverty level? What does that mean? How is that different from self-sufficiency? Those two are really removed. Oftentimes from Cincinnati, where I'm from, here in Atlanta, you need to be approaching about 250 percent of the federal poverty level if you're a single parent with two children to make ends meet without public assistance. So that was one of the first things we needed to do is really educate the business community and get an idea of what the lives were like for their lower level employees. So I guess that one of your messages is that it's this inability of employers to sort of understand the the conditions that employees are dealing with that leads to sort of some perversities in HR policies, for example, and and business approaches that may be causing trouble for both parties. You're absolutely right. And I don't think there's any malintent in this. Um, I don't think policies were created to specifically leave out certain people. That's not what we're suggesting at all. I think what we see is there's a big push in companies to really explore DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And oftentimes when we talk about our diversity efforts at companies, we are talking about gender diversity, racial diversity at our companies and inclusion, um, religious, ethnic, et cetera. But oftentimes we're not having the conversation about socioeconomic diversity within companies and socioeconomic inclusion. So what we find with these policies is many of them were created to meet the needs of middle and upper class workers, and that's probably who they were created for. So there can be work done to really understand what benefits would most meet the needs of lower wage employees. So why don't you uh, give us some examples of the types of policies that you found were creating issues. Sure. So in our toolkit, we outline about 40 different policies and practices, but we had some key top line learnings overall. One is that any policy or practice you have at your company that requires some kind of reimbursement tends to be problematic for folks on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. They just don't have the money to put forward early and then be reimbursed. Many times we think about tuition reimbursement with this, which is certainly a case. We often find our workers are going back to get an MBA or some advanced degree when really entry-level workers, an associate's degree or a certification could make 
leagues of difference for them and their family. So how might we structure those policies to invest in the worker early on? Another thing with reimbursements, the Cincinnati Zoo is a big user of our toolkit, and they realized they had a reimbursement policy for their bus passes. They have a lot of employees that use the bus every month, and they were offering a reimbursement for that $70 bus pass at the end of each month. Even though so many of their employees use the bus, they looked at what the usage was of this benefit, and there were only three employees taking advantage of it. And so the HR director, who is just very forward-thinking, talked to the employees, talked to one specifically. He knows she rides the bus every month. And he said, why? We have this great policy here. Why aren't you taking advantage of it? And she said, I have $1.75 in the morning. I have $1.75 in the afternoon, the next morning and the next afternoon. But never in my monthly budget do I have $70 all at once. So he went and negotiated a bulk rate for bus passes with our metro system came back to this employee and handed her her bus pass at the beginning of the month, and she cried. She said, you have no idea what this means for me and my family. It allows me to get to work reliably every day, but it also allows me to get to doctor's appointments and to the library and take my kids to the park and do other appointments I need to do throughout the month. Now, that employee is not going to leave there for a 25 cent an hour raise, which often happens. There's a lot of churn with lower wage workers and their jobs. She is engaged with the zoo now because they really took the time to understand her needs and invest in it. And they were going to do this anyway. They just front loaded it instead of making it a reimbursement. The other thing this does for the zoo is it gives them a huge competitive advantage when they're posting for positions when we're all fighting for employees right now. So they can, in a posting, say that this position comes with a zone one bus pass, and that just does wonders for their recruitment efforts. So that's one small thing, just a change in policy that really makes a big difference for lower wage workers. So reimbursement's a big area that companies can adapt to. A few others really quick, you know, how do we invest in the immediate needs of our employees? Many companies require you to wear a clean uniform to work. You know, in nursing homes, you need to wear clean scrubs every day. Many people from middle or upper class living arrangements have a washer and dryer right in their homes, and we wouldn't think twice about washing a uniform. But for many of our entry-level folks, that means going to a laundromat. That is the time and transportation and cost of doing that each week. We were talking to uh, one nursing home that requires uh, scrubs for their, their patient aides. And they just had this moment when they realized they have laundry facilities on site for their residents. How might they use those just for those patient aides to make a huge difference? So it's really understanding those most immediate needs of your employees. And finally, a big theme we saw was regressive perks. It seems as we get higher up in our careers, we get more things for free, which is really counterintuitive because then we have more money to actually buy the things we need. One of the examples, as in the toolkit, is of um, someone that worked downtown. And we were talking about how expensive parking was. And he goes, well, I don't have to pay for parking anymore because I'm a manager. And it just hit us like you're to the point where you can actually pay for parking and then it's given to you. What would that mean if we were able to invest in those kind of expenses for our lower wage workforce? They're literally working 10 or 11 hours out of their month to pay for that parking. 
So how might we look at regressive perks and really invest in our employees at the lower end when times are really tight for them and they're really living paycheck to paycheck? So those are some of the top top level things we saw from the toolkit. So you have some ideas that are somewhat prescriptive about how business that might kind of think that it has these problems but isn't quite sure how, what strategies might they employ to sort of deal with the underlying problems that their low-wage employees might be facing? Yeah, so I would give a few suggestions. One, get to know your workforce. Um, Get to know your people. Understand what they're struggling with, what their priorities. Don't project your priorities onto them. Really understand where their challenges are and what challenges would be most useful for them for you to remove some barriers from. Is that transportation or childcare or food access? What is that? So really get to know your employees. The second thing I'd recommend is companies get a handle on what their cost of turnover is within their organization. I think companies are really surprised about this, but when they put all those costs and lost productivity and how much money it takes to hire and do background screenings and drug tests, those numbers add up really quickly. So get a good idea of what that turnover is costing you right now and think how we might redeploy that money in a more useful way. The other thing companies can do is really look at their benefit usage by salary band. And that might raise some ideas of where you can start. If you have a 401k plan at your company, but you realize only 3% of your lowest band employees are taking advantage of that, that's a great place to start to say, how can we make something more equitable here where everyone has access to these benefits? And finally, download the toolkit. It's a free resource. And it provides really concrete, actionable items for companies. I think sometimes as employers, we're told, oh, we just need to fix it, but we're not giving the very specific things to do. And this brings some concrete examples to areas we know are problematic, like scheduling and transportation and child care. Uh, you gave us uh, one example with the Cincinnati Zoo of, a, yeah. of an employer that you've been engaged with that has found good results right. uh, from adopting relatively minor changes, actually. In exactly. Get other examples? Of course. You know, our hospitals have really done a great job embracing concepts from the toolkit. One hospital in Cincinnati, who's a very large employer, they just did very meaningful, authentic focus groups with their lowest wage employees and said, what are your biggest challenges? And actually, what came out of that was a very big discussion about food insecurity. They had several employers, employees who had been uh, had to be terminated in the past year because they were stealing food from the kitchen they actually worked in. And this was just an aha moment for this hospital to understand that full-time employees at their location were food insecure. And so... They took that learning and said, how can we incentivize different, uh, you know, attendance and other things we want to see in the workforce and be sending home meals with these employees? We're producing the food anyway. It would be thrown away. So they were able to really tap into some of those needs. And I think if there were just 
a lot of C-suite people in a um, C-suite executives in a boardroom. They never would have zoned in on food insecurity being a number one concern there. So really talk to your employees. I think that's important. So this hospital has created a whole program to meet the needs of their lowest wage employees. And um, it was just rolled out a few weeks ago, but we have every every thought that this will be a great success for them um, because it was done in such an authentic way and it was really driven by employee voice. So you've mentioned a couple times the importance of talking to your employees and understanding what their needs are, but to inject what might be unfortunately a little bit of realism into some circumstances. Sometimes employees don't really want to talk to their employers. <laughs> um, we talked a little about this before. So in those cases where is it useful to have an intermediary? Yeah, actually one of the suggestions that came up in the discussions we had was talking about a workforce coach and having a workforce coach, which is a third party that comes into the place of business that can really help employees solve for specific needs. It's kind of nice that it's not connected to HR because Sometimes our HR folks, they don't want to know the whole complicated story. They really want to manage risk and be fair. Um, that's really important in the HR function. So this third party can understand those needs and then communicate those themes up to management. We're seeing a lot of employees that are having trouble with this or that, and they can help. There was some pilot programs where we brought workforce coaches into companies, and even after the pilot they wanted to keep these workforce coaches because they were having such a positive benefit on on the workforce. Uh, let me shift gears just a little bit. Sure. Um, one of the things that we're very interested in here at the Atlanta Fed is this issue of benefit cliffs. Yeah. And you've done a lot of work uh, in thinking about the uh, benefit cliff issue. D describe what that means. Yeah, sure. We've done a lot of research on the cliff effect since 2012. And for those listeners that not, might not be familiar with that, when a person qualifies for public benefits, food assistance or housing vouchers or childcare vouchers and others, sometimes a small increase in wages can trigger a complete cutoff of a public benefit. In some cases, maybe a 90 cent an hour raise, which would be about $2,000 a year, that might put them over a childcare voucher cliff. So that $2,000 raise maybe just cost them $14,000. And this is a real phenomenon that's happening that's affecting employees, but it's also in fact affecting employers. They want to promote people and are very confused when people don't want to take that promotion because they will be facing a benefit cliff. So we've done a lot of research about this. And one of the things we can do about the cliff effect is figure out better legislation for it. How can we taper these cliffs? How can we make the limits higher? I think both of our organizations are figuring out how to do that at the state and national level. The toolkit is really meant to be an additive solution um, to provide some wraparound benefits as people are experiencing this volatility with their wages and possible benefit cutoffs. So it's a, it's a complementary idea to the cliff effect work that we're doing. I think it's a both end. So I think your general message is that almost everybody, public policymakers, nonprofits, and employers have a role in solving these problems that are really confronting in a serious way and impeding mobility for our low-wage 
Absolutely. Colleagues. I, I think sometimes when we have these discussions about very complex community issues like poverty or economic mobility, we kind of group them like this is a social problem and the nonprofits need to solve this. And here we are, you know, in the business community on the other side of the spectrum and just like get this solved for us. And really, it's everyone working in concert. We need to have great policy that supports the goals we want, which is an economic growth and mobility conversation. We also want to have employers that are seeing engaged, productive workforce. And we want to see families that are thriving in our communities, meeting their basic needs. And that has ripple effects into health, so many different areas that are beneficial to our communities. So it's all three working in concert. So I gather there is a employer toolkit 2.0. There is. Well, so we launched this last year, and uh, we have learned so much in the past year as companies start to use it, innovate on it. They bring new suggestions back to us of things that should be included. They tell us what's working really well for their particular sector. So we're learning so much from the companies. So we've decided to kind of wrap all these learnings into a uh, new version of the toolkit, which will come out in January of 2020. It will also be available at the same place, which is uh, toolkit.cincinnatiwomensfund.org. It's a free resource. And the new toolkit um, has about 60 policies and practices like the ones we described during this conversation today. It also has two additional sections, one on some tips for how we can best engage with second chance citizens that we're hiring who might have a criminal record, what are some best practices for that population, and also really taking a hard look at gender-based violence and how that affects our workforce. We did some preliminary research that suggests there is an uptick in gender-based violence and intimate partner violence when a woman gets a raise or moves into a new sector that will give her more money. And that's something we really needed to understand. If our mission is to get more women to be economically self-sufficient, but there is a violence factor that might play into that, those steps up, that's something we really need to look at. So we wanted employers to be aware of that too. So that's all wrapped into um, the toolkit. And there's a resource on there where you can calculate your company's turnover. And again, that is just powerful information before we make any change. Let's really see how much this is costing us. Can you give us the website again? Yeah, sure. It's toolkit.cincinnatiwomensfund.org. Great. Megan, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you all for joining us. We look forward to you joining us again on another Public Affairs Forum podcast. This has been a production of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. For more podcasts on this topic and others, please visit the Atlanta Fed's website at frbatlanta.org.